So we'll, we'll pick up this morning uh, where we left off in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 5. Most of you probably will have one of these. I should say, too, I'll just tell you on a personal note before we get started this morning, uh, that most of you know that Monica and I and the kids, uh, the kids that are left, I guess, um, the other ones are just dead to us, basically. <laughs> just kidding. <No. clears throat> um, the three that are left in the house, uh, we're, you know, we feel called by God to at least for one year to live in Ireland. So we're going to, we, we've been planning to make that move the first of the year and we did just get our visa. So that was a big deal um, to, for the, okay, let's give it up for the INIS of Ireland. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, I suppose they did the right thing. So yeah, we can, we can, be, be grateful for that. It was, it was a bit of a process. It is a bit of a process, immigration and that sort of thing. So I'm thankful for that. And that really was the last um, big hurdle to be able to say we're going. Um, you know, up until really that point, we just say we're trying to go or we're planning to go, or we're hoping to go. Uh, so that really is the last major hurdle. Um, so I guess... I don't know, maybe just to say, for those of you that are closer to me uh, and Monica, some of you don't really even know me, and that's, that's good. That just shows the underground is always changing. It's always growing. Uh, but for those that are close to me or close to us, um, or for those of you that, that feel like I have been uh, an important part of your spiritual life in some way, and you feel sad or you feel a sense of loss at us leaving. Um, I guess I just want to acknowledge that and say, well, I, I suppose say two things. One, we love you. And two, thank you. Thank you for letting us go. I suppose that's, that's part of it is that you are, we are, this community, this ever-changing community is a missionary community. And because of that, we don't, as a rule, hold each other back from the things that we think God is saying to us. I don't fully understand it. I don't, I don't fully understand what I'm meant to do there. I have some ideas. I'm, I'm not aimless, but... Uh, I don't fully understand how you guys are going to flourish without me, but I, but I know that both of those things are true because the one I'm following is the same one that has brought us together in the first place. He knows what he's doing. He's good at this. God is very good at putting his people exactly where they need to be in exactly the right moment. And it is really up to us, the work of God. I mean, this is the way Jesus put it in the book of John. The, the, the work of God is to believe. It is to believe. It is faith itself. So I'm proud of you. I'm proud of, of those that are called, you know, as, as we step away, that means that people are then therefore called into that place, into the, the, the void that's opened up there. And the leaders like Lucas and Keisha and all of your staff, 
Jeremy taking on a national role, Stacy taking on an international role, all of those roles mean those are all callings. Those all have to do with every single one of those people saying yes to God, not to some organizational chart, but simply again saying, God, where are you calling me? And I, I actually think that's going to mean something in this text this morning. But we are a missionary community. We go where we're sent. And the day we stop saying yes to that, the day we cannot say yes to that, is the day we ought to shut our doors. And we are underground. And that means we're more, actually, that's, that's changing even every day, what that means, what it means here locally and what it means around the world. We're more than just uh, a movement of autonomous microchurches in Tampa Bay. We are now um, something more than that. We, it, it, we have friends, movements, covenantal relationships now all over the world all over the world. Uh, we have to steward that. I think it was, maybe it was a couple of months ago, you know, Keisha was preaching and she, she, she reminded us of this, that one of our values is the whole world. That we're actually, we, we have taken on ourselves a commitment to the whole world, which is a crazy thing to do. It's a, it's a impossibly large thing to do. And yet we've done it. And, 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 and part of what that means to be committed to the whole world is for you, those of you who are committed here, to continue to evolve and to shape a beautiful, powerful, reconciled community for the rest of the world to peek in on and to watch. But it also means we have to grow this family. We have to learn how to relate to people in different cities in different cultures, in different parts of the world. And so there is work to do beyond Tampa now. And I, I just, I love you and I'm, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that you are open-handed. We are open-handed with each other. Right? Okay, okay. If I'm wrong, then I retract my, th my gratitude. Um, <laughs> But I think that's true. I think that's how you are and who you are. Um, anyway, I'll, I'm going to preach one more time, I think December 16th. Uh, and it's our intention there to do more of like a sending, a mutual blessing, uh, and a mutual commissioning. I think something like that is going to happen probably December 16th. So this isn't, this, don't, don't come up to me and hug me and say goodbye forever. Um, you can, you can come up to me and hug, well, don't hug me ever, but uh, you can come up to me, shake hands. Uh, Lord, we open up our hearts to your word this morning, to this text, to your spirit alive and at work within it. There is no part or portion of scripture which is not breathed into by you. And so this morning, we, we let that breath come into us and we, we look for you in these lines. And we look for you in, in the, the moment of our life where we are right now, in ministry, in relationships, in our faith with you. Come, Jesus. Amen. Okay, take a minute here, and if you don't, if you don't have this piece of paper, I'm gonna, it's, it's Acts 5, 12 to 21, but listen, this last little part, like 21b, 
uh, is not, you don't need to read that. Uh, I'm not saying don't read the Bible, but uh, the, 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 that is a sort of, you need the rest of it to, for that last sentence to make sense. So I'm not going to talk about that this morning. So it's really up to 21A, I suppose you'd say. Um, and of course, you're welcome on your phone or whatever to keep reading the rest of the story. But I'm just going to focus on 12 to 21A. So take, take two minutes and just read that quietly to yourself. Okay, I know that's short, but a couple of, uh, couple of your thoughts or questions or comments. Do we, have, do we have microphones? We do? Yeah. So, anybody? Thought? Comment? If not, you can just give me your time and I'll use it. I was just noting, noticing in verse 13 that it said no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by other people. And I was just wondering, like, why wouldn't people dare join them? Like, what's significant about that? Yes, yeah, really, what a great observation and an important, I think, an important line. So that's actually going to be one of the things I comment on personally. I, I do think it's a strange... Uh, juxtaposition of this people are drawn to them but they don't want to join them and I, I think it's it's worth considering what else yeah. oh. yep. so I just thought it was weird <laughs> that when Peter's shadow would fall on them like the people would come out so it like seems like people were getting healed and I just thought that was weird because, like, in today's day and age, like, I don't like to see people all elevated. You know, it's like we're following Jesus. Jesus and God are elevated. So, but in God's wisdom, he chose to allow the apostles to have that. So that just kind of more was pondering. Well, it's a, I think it's a great observation. And actually, if we really drill down into it, it's not clear whether or not the shadow did heal people. It's it's funny because the I, I've heard that, too, and I... I I maybe even might have thought that before reading this again, that Peter's shadow healed people. Uh, but that isn't actually what the text is reporting to us. It's reporting that people wanted to be so close to the apostles, wanted their sick friends and family, that even the possibility that just they would pass by them. It's similar to the, um, it, it, we, you know, we don't live in the first century, the ancient world, so... We don't, we don't know the, the mind or the culture, but it's similar to that woman who had a 12-year a, a condition who thought when the, she saw Jesus, if I could just touch his cloak, if I, could just, if I could just even come close enough to him, maybe some of that healing would come off on me. Uh, that's, that's a sort of similar mythos or, or belief that healing was just something that kind of emanated from a person or was a power that emanated from them. If you could just get close enough, you know, it wasn't personal. It wasn't personal. Um, and so that, this, this text is not necessarily commenting on whether or not that was right or wrong. It's just the way that people felt about the apostles and, and the way they were acting in, in response to the power they saw at work in them. So it's really more of a, it's really more of a revelation about 
people's response to, I don't know, empowered Christians. You know, this, this is how people might act around you if you really were uh, full of the Holy Spirit. Ryan. Great observation, yeah. Yeah, right. It is me. Um, I just wanted to comment on the, uh, the, the sort of public display of disdain, this idea of uh, the high priest and all his associates being filled with jealousy and that jealousy turning into incarceration in public jail. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's a really interesting thing. Like when you see like people who you don't expect to be involved in some kind of like public controversy and watching that unfold in public is a, a bit of a weird experience. So we have these two experiences, one of these miracles and all these things happening and two of like the, the, the sort of religious uh, drama unfolding in public. Yeah, no, you're right. And, 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 and how does that make, so back to Courtney's question, how does that make the public feel? So on the one hand, they're drawn to you because look, the power of God must be with them. Sick people are healed, demons are driven out, there's something going on there. On the other hand, these people get arrested and they're publicly shamed. I don't wanna, I don't wanna be a part of that. I don't wanna be put in jail, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't. So it is, this, it is this, I don't know, this, this paradox of, of the apostles, the early church leaders, that they had both of those things going on in their lives, that people were repel, repelled by the threat to them in their life, but also drawn in by the power of God. It's a great observation. Anyone else? Maybe one more? Yeah, over here. So in our small group, we talked about, like, how come we don't have this amount of, like, this healing thing going on around us anymore? Like, it's just kind of strange. But I remember there was, uh, I, I work with some groups, like I go to ALFs and uh, kind of just have Bible study with them every weekend. And a lot of them have like serious illness, like mental problems and stuff like that. I, I, I pray for them, nothing seems to happen. And I remember, <laughs> I remember going back to God, I'm like, God, it's so sad. Like these guys, I feel like I can't help them. And I know you can heal them. Why are you not healing them? Mm. And I felt like God was telling me, just keep praying for them. Mm. Just keep praying. And one time we're actually talking about uh, something in Acts and about healing. There's a lot of healing in, in the book of Acts. So we're discussing the book of Acts and talking about healing. And one of the ladies there was like, how come, the same question, how come there are no healings today, you know? And I was like, God still does the same thing. He still heals, it's the same God, it hasn't changed. And she said, will you pray for me? <laughs> she was blind, like, like, are you gonna pray for me? I'm like, okay, all right, maybe after the Bible study, I will pray for you. <laughs> this is a setup, <laughs> yeah. And, after the Bible study, she reminded me, you still have to pray for me, you know? <laughs> so I kind of laid hands on her and I started praying. And she's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That is blue. That is green. And she just started calling out the scholars. Like, like as she was looking at herself, like, oh, I didn't even know I'm this skinny, you know? Like, it's like, I can see my hand for the first time. I was like blown away. Like, mm. God is still the same God. Yeah, mm. uh, it's still. Maybe we're paying too amen. much attention into the... You know. Amen. Yes, yeah. amen. Okay, so... Wow. I, I think that that... that I don't know. That, that comment, that story is sort of... It's a bit of both, isn't it? How, you pray for people, they don't get healed. You, you pray for a blind woman and she starts to see. I mean, uh, there it is. That's the reality of this kind of faith. It should still... Of course, healing does happen. 
uh, I may comment on that too. The truth is healing happens all the time. God is healing people all the time. There are people in this room that have been healed uh, multiple times. Our problem, I think, in a modern sense is we forget that. It's not that it doesn't happen. It's that our memories are very short. Um, God will we, we'll, we'll, sort of like our whole world will rely on a miracle. God will provide a miracle. And the next day we write it off and move on to the next problem. But uh, it, of course, still does happen. Did I hear a voice again, like a disembodied voice? Are we done? Okay. Maybe that was in my head. Um, awkward. So, I, if it's okay, if you'll indulge me, I want to make a few comments, sort of um, textual comments. <clears throat> and then I want to really maybe give you one, one big idea this morning. So, I, I'm just going to... There, there are a few things in this text which I just think are so important that I don't want to brush over them. And so I do want to just comment quickly, kind of wrap it on a few of these things. The first is uh, that the apostles performed miracles. So there's a couple things that are important there, I think at least textually. One is it was the apostles. It wasn't everyone, it was the apostles. And why is that important? Because it isn't saying that every single believer was running around, running around doing miracles. And typically what we do when we have a frustration with why aren't miracles happening today, it means why am I not the person performing miracles? Or why is, why is every single Christian I know not running around performing miracles? And some, at least in this text, the, the, the modifier there is that the apostles were performing miracles. That word is also important to the idea of performance. It's something to do with bearing witness. It's, it, it has a, a purpose beyond the miracle, and that also is a problem that we have when we come to think about miracles or healing, that it's about the healing or it's about the miracle. And yet, at least in the book of Acts, it's important, it seems important to God to do miracles for a reason, for the demonstration of something which is bigger, some story which is being unfolded, the, the bearing of witness to the truth of the kingdom and the possibility of the kingdom in the future. And so the miracle itself is not the point, and the, 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 the clamoring for miracles, the clamoring for healing, which happens about every, I don't know, 20 or 30 years in the church, there's this sort of awakening or desire to see miracles, to want to see more and more supernatural things. And the threat always to us as Christians in the search for miracles is to want the miracle more than God, or to even say it another way, to want the miracle more than the demonstration of the glory of God in the world. The deeper yearning for this community was not that miracles would happen, but is that people would know that Jesus had come to change the world forever. And miracles became a way to demonstrate that. It became, for lack of a better word, an illustration of that. Because the truth is, no, every miracle is temporary. Every healing is temporary. And so the question we should ask is, Lord, do you want to bear witness to yourself right now in this woman who is blind? And when he does, it will be for his own glory and for his own story. And we ought to be looking for that. We ought to be believing that it could happen any point, at any moment, with any person. But the other important thing to that, at least that phrase, the apostles were the ones performing the miracles, is it has something to do with this idea of being sent. You know, apostle means, it's, it's the Greek equivalent to the word missionary. It means one who is sent. So missio is the Latin derivative, apostolo is the Greek derivative. So we could just interchange the, those words. The missionaries performed the miracles. 
The missionaries perform the miracles. The sent people perform the miracles. The miracles are not meant to be in a church building. This is really important. And that's also part of what we get wrong, is that we think, let's, let's, let's be about miracles. Let's be about the supernatural. And so what we do is we get a bunch of Christians in a room. And the truth is that, that may work and that may be fine and that may be exactly what God wants to do in a, in a certain moment. But that does not come from the book of Acts. Because the miracles that the Holy Spirit seemed to want to do in the, in, the, in the primitive expression of the church, in the first expression of the church, had something to do with mission. And it had to do with being the ones who were sent. So in other words, it's the person who is sent out who finds the miracles. It's the person who leaves the comfort and the security of the Christian enclave that finds the miracles. The miracles were happening on the road of mission, outside the safety of the, of the group think and the Christian gathering. That's important. I think vastly important. Miracles and the full expression of the power of the Holy Spirit is not something we should expect necessarily in a Christian meeting. The place where Christian community, faith, proclamation touches the world, that's where we expect miracles. That's where we pray for miracles. That's where we hunger for miracles to happen. Sentness is connected to the miraculous. And if you want to see the miraculous more in your life, then go somewhere where people need miracles. Go somewhere, be sent by God, follow His leading. Because here's the thing, the apostles are only ever where they're sent. They're only ever where they're supposed to be, where God already wants to do something. Do you understand? There is some place in your life, some, some, some location in your life, some group of people out there in, in, in the fringes of your life. And, and just imagine this for a second. God is yearning to do the miraculous in that place. Yearning, looking actually in the book of Ezekiel, scanning the earth for someone who will go to that place. And when you become an apostle, when you become a missionary, when you say to God, I'll go to that place, I'll go anywhere you send me. And you show up in that place, and guess what? Something extraordinary happens. The supernatural happens. The miracle happens. Other people might think, look at you. Look at your shadow. Look at this. That's amazing. And you know. You know the truth. The only reason why that happens is because you were faithful to go. He already wanted to do it. He may have already done it. He may have done it even if you didn't go. And there would have been no one there to bear witness or testify. There is a connection here between missionary and miracle that I just can't overlook. Something too about this Solomon, Solomon's colonnade, you need to understand the location here of their work, their choice to move the holy place from inside the temple to outside the temple. This is, and I'll come back to this, a moving of center. God is moving the center, they are moving the center. The center is no longer inside the temple, in that holiest of place where only a few people could go. They purposely choose a place where everyone can be. So I want you to imagine the temple as sort of a rectangle. And inside, uh, you, 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 let's say on, on, the, on one end of that rectangle, you had this gate called the beautiful gate. And that's where you would enter. And as you entered into that gate, so it's a walled courtyard a walled courtyard, and that courtyard would be called the Court of Women. That's the first place. It's all part of the Court of Israel, but the Court of Women. Women could go in there, but they could go, could go no further. 
And then you go a little deeper and then you find the more holy places where the priests could go and the men could go and then finally the holiest of holies. But outside of that gate, just outside of the gate beautiful, just before the court of women, was a, 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 a colonnade, a, a porch, a, a patio where Gentiles could go. And they called it Solomon's Colonnade. And it's right there. I mean, it's as close as you can be to the temple and not be inside it. It's the place where women have access and the place where Gentiles have access. But it is, understand, it is a significant movement from what used to be the most holy place to this totally different place, a place where everyone can come. And this is the place where, this is the epicenter of the miraculous. It's the new center or the place where God was. Listen, God is always moving the center. Always. And where we get in trouble as Christians is that we, we don't keep up. We, we, we hold on, man, stubborn to the old center. And even once God has moved and there's something extraordinary happening over there, we fight it. We reject it. We judge it. We deny it. But he's always moving the center so that we'll look for him, so that we'll follow him, so that we'll always worship him and not a way of doing things. So we'll always want him and not a leader or an ideology or even a community. You got to keep up with God. The second quick observation I want to make is this, this idea of believers meeting in public. Uh, there's something really, I think, quite significant about their gathering, so that they did gather as believers, but they gathered in public. They gathered for all to see. And I think that also is significant. They would meet together in a public place. They did not hide behind closed doors. They went where people were thinking and talking about God. And even that, there's a principle of incarnational ministry there. They went to the place, because by the way, temple doesn't equal church in the book of Acts. Fix that in your mind, quick, especially as we continue to go through the book of Acts. The temple is not an equivalent to the church. The temple is a place of mission in the book of Acts. It's a place where people were religious or open to God or talking about God in the wrong way, in a way that was uh, uh, creating misunderstanding. So, so in other words, the temple becomes a place of mission. And, and there's an incarnational principle here, in a missiological principle of getting just as close as you can, of trying to enter into a space that you're trying to reach, a people that you're trying to reach, to come right up to the edge of their life, but not entering into it, not becoming exactly like it. To get as close as you can, to bring as much honor and relationship as you possibly can, but to not become them to still somehow be drawing them out into a different place, a new center. This also is, is, is extraordinary. The, the fact that they were meeting together with this, this remarkable otherworldly kind of friendships and community, this multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-generational, cross-gender community, 
That's why they couldn't meet anywhere else, because they wanted Gentiles to be part of it. They wanted women to be part of it. They had no choice but to be in Solomon's colonnade. That was the new center for them. And their, their friendships, something as simple as friendship, I don't even want to call it something else, just their friendships with each other, their commitments to each other, became a part of their demonstration of God's kingdom in the world. They needed to show that to the world as part of their mission. Let me say it this way. Their community was one of their miracles. Their community was one of their miracles. And this kind of community, I think we all yearn for. Some of us have, some of us have tasted it. We know that it's meant to be something that the world can watch and even participate in, to taste and see what is possible. Our community is meant to be a part of our mission. It's meant to be something we show the world. It's not meant to be something we hide in our rooms over here and have community, and then we go out and do mission and act like we don't know each other. A part of how we do mission and engage the world is this, is this be who we are in this love relationship with each other. This is what Jesus said as he predicted himself. He said, you know what? The whole world will know that you are my disciples. And listen to this, that the Father sent me because of the way that you love each other. So not just will they know, mm, these people, they belong to Jesus. Look at it. Look at Look at how they love each other. That's incredible. That is a miracle. Not just that, but he says they'll then also know, this is about proclamation, they'll know Jesus is from the Father. He really did come to save the human race. People are supposed to come to that realization by looking at us be community with each other. So um, if that's true and if that's possible, and I know we come up short in it, but, but if it is true and if it is possible and when it does happen, how can we hide that from the world? What kind of mistake is it then to have that to show the world, to offer the world, to see and, and to do it behind closed doors, and they don't. They bring that into the light of day so that all can see. I saw, I saw a, a, a new study recently out of Brigham Young University uh, where the researchers were looking at loneliness, and if you don't know, loneliness is at epidemic proportions, the highest levels reported ever in, our, in the history of our country. Loneliness is now considered a major public health issue. So we're talking about the existential experience of feeling lonely and your health, like, like whether or not you're physically sick or well. Uh, this study determined that it is a greater, listen to this, loneliness as a factor is a greater health risk than obesity and more destructive to your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Some of you that smoke are like, this is good news. I have, I have friends. I can smoke 15 cigarettes and I'm, I'm even. And that may be true. The study, I mean, this study was a meta-analysis that looked at 70 other studies covering 3 million people. The results were three things. Social isolation, loneliness, and living alone can increase mortality risk by 29%, 26%, and 32, 36% respectively. Social isolation, loneliness, and living alone. 
And this is all, by the way, if you're interested, this is all for my nerd friends. This is adjusting for age, gender, socioeconomic status, and pre-existing health conditions. Loneliness is a massive threat to our health. And we know, we already know. It, it's not that, that, that it makes us die sooner, it's that it makes life not worth living at all to be alone. People are yearning for friendship. They're yearning for reconciliation. They're yearning for acceptance. They're yearning for a place where they can feel like, listen, this is, please don't, please don't trivialize this. Please, please don't let this just pass over you. A place where they can belong. You're looking for that. A place where their life matters, where it counts for something. Where together we're up to something, we're doing something. We, we together matter. And this is, this is a part of what this first church is now offering to the world in a way the world had never seen before. Ever. How, how ridiculous would it be to then hide that in buildings with steeples and crosses? It's our best, most powerful miracle on offer. And they do it in public. They offer it freely to the world. We have to bring our community to people to offer it as a part of our mission. And my question to you as a leader or as a person who's in a microchurch or in a community or in a fellowship of some kind, my question to you is, first of all, is your fellowship healthy enough? Is, it, is there love enough there that you'd want to show it to the world? <laughs> you know, or is it sort of messed up? And, and, and maybe that's why you're hiding, you know, because it, isn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't remind you of Jesus so much. But if it is, and my guess is even, even, even some of our dysfunctional uh, communities are still more, more potent, more unique than you, you think, actually, than it is on offer anywhere else. And if, if it is healthy enough, then the next question is, is it public enough? Is your community public enough? And is there love there which would compel someone to believe that the Father has sent Jesus? Because that's possible. And it's something I see here. The third thing, real quick, then, is this, this, this comment that was made earlier about being highly regarded but not joined. What an interesting thing. Does anyone, does anyone else find that strange? Wow, these people are amazing. Uh, no, of course I'm not going to join it. Are you crazy? No, but they're amazing. They're amazing. But I'm not gonna, I don't want to join it. And by the way, you know what this feels like. You know what it feels like. This is how, this is how the American... Uh, uh, psyche feels towards Mother Teresa or something like that. Amazing, amazing. Do you want to go? Do you want to go to Calcutta and serve the dying and lepers and the very, very poor forever and for the rest of your life? No, 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 no. A highly regarded, nobody wants to join. And, and there's something there too. There's something there about the, the texture and the quality and the, the substance of the kingdom of God, the substance of the people of God. And when the church is at its best, what it actually looks like. And this is actually what it looks like. It looks like something which is so attractive, so extraordinary, so different that everybody, even non-believers, look at it and go, I, I, got, I have to admit, I, I have a lot of respect for this. It's pretty beautiful. It's pretty compelling. 
but I don't really want to join because it's too hard. That's to Ryan's comment, because it's too hard. And both things are true, and both things are right, and both things are the correct revelation about it. And you notice in the very next line, so, so you know, Luke is giving us that, 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 that strange juxtaposition there that no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, he says, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their numbers. So you look at it, you say, it's amazing. I have so much respect for it. There's no way I'm joining it because it seems way too hard. And that's correct because it is way too hard and it is beyond you. And the only way in and the way people did come in is through faith in Jesus. There, that's the only door. You, you can't do it. You, you don't want to do it actually. You don't have the power, you don't have the strength. In a human being, there is not enough power, strength, wisdom, or courage to do this thing called the kingdom of God. The only way in and the only way to supply it is because you believe in Jesus, because he opened the prison doors for you, because he saved you, because he loves you, because you still hear his voice ringing in your ear. I remember, is JL here? Oh, good, you're here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell a story about you, is that okay? Yep, good. I got permission. Uh, several years ago, right after J.L. was sort of finished with high school, um, she went through a period where she, didn't want, she did not want to call herself a Christian. You remember that? You're like, Dad, I'm not going to call myself a Christian. Now, I, I won't tell too much of her story because, you know, I obviously have not asked for permission. Uh, but, you know, she was making some choices which were not, she knew were not holy. She, she knew some choices in her life at that point. She, she knew were not particularly holy. And this is even more important. She knew that she was not a person on mission. She was not really engaging the world, trying to bring people into this beautiful story, this good news of Jesus. And because she was raised by us and because she grew up in this community, this, I, I remember having this conversation with you, Jail, where, where she said to me, Dad, uh, I don't want to call myself a Christian. I said, why? You still have this faith. So we, we did have to have a little bit of talk about uh, uh, salvation uh, by, uh, uh, by grace through faith. We had, I had to help her understand that actually you can't sort of come in and out of your, 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 your salvation. Jesus did something for you once and for all. But what I liked about what she was saying, what I, what I admired, what I appreciate, and what I see actually in this text from the way people were feeling is she, thought, she said, Dad, I, I can't, I've seen the way Christians are supposed to be. I've seen the way you live. I've seen the way underground people live, and I'm not doing that right now, and I'm not going to run around calling myself that. She just, the, the resistance towards hypocrisy was so great that in spite of a theological truth, which is actually she was always and, and could not be taken from the Father's hand, uh, but still, because her life wasn't measuring up, she just didn't want, to, she didn't want that to be a possibility. And because when you, see, when you see the people of God really living as the people of God, you realize it is, it is, it is an all-or-nothing thing. Fourth, the fourth kind of observation I want to make here is that people brought their impossibilities to God. I want to I kind of change, uh, just slightly change your viewpoint here of this, this, this healing narrative or this idea that people kept bringing people to the apostles to be healed. Listen, it's important to get a little bit of context here. In the first century world, if you were ill, it could be what we would consider a minor illness or it could be something 
uh, debilitating. But in either case, can you understand, in the ancient world, there was no such thing as medicine. There was no such thing as an understanding of human anatomy, even. I mean, imagine how long it took. It would take a thousand years before they, we begin to cut open bodies and understand what was even going on inside the human body. There was no understanding and no awareness of pathology or of illness at any level. It was a complete and total mystery to people when they got sick and sometimes recovered and then when they got sick and sometimes died. And because, of course, there was no, there was not even, it's not just that there was like hack medicine, there was no medicine. And because of that, because there's no, no equivalent to what we understand as modern medicine existed in this world. And so for them, please, please understand, this is why I need to frame this for you. For them to say, we brought our people who were sick and needed healing, what they're essentially doing is saying, we're bringing you our impossible problems. And why is that important and why is it different maybe for us now? And how do we maybe need to read this text slightly differently because we don't just want to jump to this idea of like we ought to be running around healing each other because the truth is now with modern medicine, people are healed all the time because they go to a doctor, the doctor prescribes something and they get well and they're cured and that's healing. Guys, that's also healing. Now you can say God had nothing to do with that. I disagree. I disagree. I think the revelation of knowledge peeled back through time is also, been, is also a, 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 an expression of the grace of God to human beings. And by the way, if you are very sick and something which would have killed someone 500 years ago and you can go see a doctor and that can be cured, I hope you understand that is the grace of God. And I think you would actually, in point of fact. But the truth is now, if you, if you come down with something which is easily treatable, what are we really offering if we say, look, we do a healing thing, come bring your sick people to us? What are we offering? We're just offering, I don't know, convenience, I suppose, or we can save you money because prayer is cheaper. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, what are we really offering? It's just not, it's not as big of a thing anymore. Do you understand? And in that sense, in that sense, I actually think it doesn't work anymore for us. Because to understand what it is that the world is saying, there is no answers to this. There is no, this is a total mystery to us. Nobody knows how to deal with this. That's what they bring to us. And in some cases, that's, there are still illnesses where there are no answers. And in those cases, yes, maybe that's when we show up. That's when the church is there. But I don't know, for me, I, 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 when I think about that, I, I can't help but think about mental health. I just look at the, no, no offense to any, any, any mental health uh, professionals, God bless you and thank you for the work you do, but the truth is you're just groping in the dark. The DSM, all that stuff, just guessing. Just guessing. It's probably more like what illness would have felt like to the ancient mind. It just feels like we don't really know. We don't know how to heal people's minds. We don't know. There's nowhere you can go and just get a script written and your depression goes away. There's nowhere to go to get a script written and your fears go away and your anxiety goes away. We can numb it. We can distract you. Even talk therapy. We can help you try to understand it. And these maybe are some of the ways in which we ought to offer healing to the world. 
Maybe this is a better, I don't know, metaphor for the idea that the world should be bringing their sick to us and saying, I don't know, anxiety, broken relationships, addictions. And what we offer then is, the impos- is help with the impossible. Help with the impossible. By the way, nothing has really changed from Jesus' mandate for ministry, for the work of his people, to this time, to our time. It was always three things. Proclaim the kingdom of God, cast out demons, and heal the sick. And that tripartite mission continues. For every microchurch, in whatever you're doing, you have to ask yourself, how are we engaging in those three things? How are we proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God? How are we bringing healing? And not just in some strictly physical or physiological sense, but how are we dealing with people's impossibilities and bringing the miraculous into that? And then, and then the engagement of evil. How are we coming face to face with the demons of our world and expelling them, driving them out, delivering people from them? And that looks a little different in every microchurch, but it remains our mission. It was theirs, it was when Jesus sent the 12 and when he sent the 72, and now without the, the, the bodily presence of Jesus, that's still what they're doing, those three things, which I actually find kind of, I don't know, beautiful and connecting us to that ancient world. These are our modern miracles. The last sort of thing I want to say, really where I've come to, my, the bit that's maybe pressing my heart the most is this, this idea that, of, I don't know, moving the center. And I will say that there's another observation here is that religious people were jealous. Religious people were jealous and so they became judges. Because they were jealous, they became judges. And human beings are very bad at being judges. Very bad at being judges. I think we just probably need to stay out of the judgment business completely as missionaries. Uh, this, is, this is my opinion. Uh, the other day, we were, the family was driving and I pulled up to, I was northbound on Florida and I pulled up to Hillsborough and you know, there's like a Circle K or something like that right there. You know what I'm talking about? There's like, do you guys live in Tampa? What's going on here? Okay. <laughs> Uh, blank stares, you're like, I don't live here, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so there's like a circle K there, and um, there's a guy who was an uh, older man, he, I, he, he was flying a sign, panhandling, I don't know, he was just sort of walking out in traffic trying to get money. Um, so I see him, and he's coming over, and it's cool, whatever, but then behind him, on the crosswalk, I see this guy just fly by on a bicycle, just shoom, flies by. And the guy who was, who was kind of interacting with the cars, 
sees this cyclist go by, and he, he kind of freaks out. He, 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 he's alarmed, and he begins to kind of try to half-heartedly chase after him. This guy looked like he might have been 70s, so he wasn't going to get far, and the guy on the bike looked young, and he took off. I mean, he was, he was booking it. So he, he, he ran sort of half-heartedly for a while, and then he, he ran out of gas and turned around. He, but he was, you know, he was visibly upset. And, and so right then, the light changes, and we're going to turn left on Hillsborough. And so I just, I felt like, it just appeared to me like this guy's bike got stolen. That's what it seemed to me like had happened. Now, you have to understand, I'm going to put this in context. Monica's in the passenger seat. Luke is in the back seat. Now, Luke is, I, I, how do I describe Luke's condition currently. Um, Luke is like ready to go. You know what I mean? He's, he's locked and loaded. Um, at any time, anywhere, he's game. He's up for it. He's, he's spoiling for a fight. Let's say it that way. He is spoiling for a fight. Always spoiling for a fight. I don't know where he gets this from. I'm a very peace-loving person. <laughs> But he's just spoiling for a fight. Noah knows because he's always trying to actually fight Noah. He's constantly trying to fight Noah. Um, so, you know, anyway, it's, it's, that's a whole different world. But, you know, Luke took up wrestling. So I, we thought, man, that'll get some of this aggression out. I'm not sure that's helped. I actually think it's just made him dangerous. Uh, <laughs> he, like, has moves now to go with this unbridled sense of aggression. So he's ready to go. So, so Luke's ready to go. So he sees that I'm also ready to go in my own way, in my own Christian leader way. Uh, and so I turn left, and I, we, I don't know why. This is just what, this is just, Sanders do this. We just think every problem is our problem. We think we're supposed, to, we're supposed to do something about this. So we zip around, I turn around, and I try to pull up to this guy who seems to me like he possibly got his bike stolen. We roll down the window, and I'm like, hey, man, did that guy just steal your bike? And he goes, yeah, he stole my bike. And so we're Sanders, we're underground, engage evil in all its forms, so we say, so I say, I'm going to get your bike back. You stay here, I'm going to get your bike back. He's like, okay. Let's roll up the window, I take off. Now I'm going down, I'm, going, I'm eastbound on Hillsborough, we can't find this guy, he's gone. I mean, he was booking it, he must have turned. So we keep trying to go down, and, we're, and meanwhile, Luke's just, he's ready. He's amped up. You know what I mean? He's like ready to go. And, he, and I could see him like hand on the door handle. We're driving, and he's like hand on the door handle. Just let me at him, Dad. Just say the word. Now, I recognize this dynamic is happening. So I look back at him, and I say to him, you don't get out of this car till I say so. But just wait for my word, you know, wait for, wait for my, and I feel really good about this because I think, I probably don't have to do anything. I probably just let him go at the key moment, you know, I could just sort of watch and collect the bike and put it in the car and move on. So we, 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 we turn, um, I, I guess Nebraska, we turn to Nebraska and we see him, so we're ready. And so we, I pull up to him, and I pull up, hey, man, he stops, What? And I'm like, hey, you stole that guy's bicycle. And he says, now I'm not kidding, this really happened. He says, it's my bicycle. He stole it from me first. <laughs> so we're like, hmm, okay. 
all right. Luke's like, hand off the door handle. <laughs> and then he says, then he says, you can ask my uncle. Ask my uncle Gary. I don't know. I don't remember his name. You can ask my uncle. You can call my uncle. And I'm like, are we going to do this? Are we going to call this guy's uncle? And I, we just found ourselves in a situation we could not handle. Do you understand? We, we rushed off into the world of judgment because we love it, because I want to be a judge, because I want to bring justice to the world, because I want to be God in this world. And the truth is, I'm just I'm not equipped for it. I'm not equipped. I'm not ready. I don't have anything in place for sort of proper uh, 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 litigation here. Where I could like, okay, let's call the uncle. You know, let's hear, let's hear the uncle's story. And let's go back and let's depose the, uh, the alleged victim here and so on. And let's get, I'm not ready for this. I'm not prepared for this. I was going somewhere. Do you understand? I'm not ready for it. We're not built for the judgment business. But we're drawn to it. We can get that hot blood in us to want to take it to the person we think is done the clearly wrong thing. And I just, we just, I just realized as I'm sitting there, I'm like, just, we're just, we're just, we're out of options here, you know. I'm not equipped to know who's telling the truth and who isn't. I'm not equipped, really, to exercise judgment. You know what I'm equipped to do, though? I'm equipped to deliver grace, the goods of the kingdom. And I'm never never out of my depth when that's what I'm offering the world. And that's what the missionary does, you see. But these, these religious people, they were jealous, and so it led them to a place of judgment, and we're just bad at that. And as soon as we do that, we become the villains in the story. We become the people that are actually opposing God in the world, even if we mean to help Him along. These people, they're religious. They didn't think they were the problem, you see. And we, when, we, when, we become the, when we become judges, when we, when we christen ourselves judges in the world, even if in the name of God or for God, we think somehow we're helping God. And the truth is, he doesn't need your help to judge the earth. He'll do it on his own. And he's made a promise, actually, that he will. As he says, you know, I, I think Paul puts it best, maybe, in Romans 12, where he says, look, don't repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Because why? Because God will judge the world because vengeance is God's. The guy who stole the bike originally or whatever, the original bike owner, stealer, God is going to deal with that some way at some point. I always think of the Good Samaritan story, you know, the story where the, the, the man is accosted by thieves He's coming from Jerusalem, Jericho. He's on this treacherous road and he's set upon by thieves and he's beaten and robbed and left bleeding on the side of the road. And then, you know, a priest walks by, ignores him. A Levite walks by, ignores him. And then this, then this sort of unlikely hero, the Samaritan, comes by and bandages him up and puts him on his donkey and takes him to a place where he can be healed and restored, and that whole story. I, I often think of myself, it's not like I would be, I mean, maybe I would, 
maybe, I would, maybe I'm the priest or the Levite, but I don't think so. I think I'm the Samaritan. I think I'd stop. But the thing is, the problem with me is I think I'd stop and be like, dude, who did this to you? Who did it? Describe them. You know, I, I'm here for you, man. This wasn't right. This wasn't right. Stay there. I'm going to go get them. You know, I'm going to go. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to avenge you. What is that? That's the bad Samaritan or something. This is not... Not really what God wants. It's not the way that God wants us bringing his kingdom into that situation. It's not like, it's not like I would just ignore him. I care about you, man. This isn't right. This hasn't happened to you. You tell me what they look like. I'm going to go bust some ass for you. That's what I'm going to do. I shouldn't have said that. That was a... That was a I, I apologize. We're going we're gonna to strike that from the record just seem like the right thing to say when you're saying the wrong thing. It's a quote from the bad Samaritan. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, we can, we can definitely fall into this thing of judgment and, and anger, and even when you're the recipient of it. So now religious people are against you, or, or you have people that should be your friends, but they're, I don't know, they're attacking you, they're persecuting you. You're just trying to do what God's leading you to do, but they're criticizing you. And there's something extraordinary about these, these people, these apostles, especially when we feel wronged. The apostles could have gone into that mode. They could have been hurt. They could have been anxious. They could have nursed their own wounds from the people that should have been their friends. I mean, of all the people in the world that should have been supporting their message, it should have been these people. They should have supported them. They should have received the message. But they didn't. But instead of letting that judgment, that persecution, bring them, the apostles, to a place of resentment and inactivity and isolation, and judgment themselves, and jealousy themselves. You know what they did? They just went back to the colonnade. They just went back to the center, the new center. A couple years ago, I told you this story of a monk living in Spain in the 14th century, a guy called... Luis Ponce de Leon, brother, Frey Ponce de Leon. He was a brilliant student of languages and canon law. But he turned away from academic studies and became a monk in the Augustinian order. He became an Augustinian monk. And in 1571, he was teaching in the University of Salamanca. And he was an expert in languages, so he translated the book called Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, which is a, an illicit sort of book. And so he translated it into the common tongue, and the church repudiated him as a heretic because he was just translating actually what the text said, which is a bit racy. And so he was repudiated as a heretic and put in prison, if you can believe that. How do you like that? Put in prison. And there he fell ill and suffered in a tiny dungeonous cell. No bigger than your closet. 
for four years for nothing, for saying what the Bible said to the church. And in a strange reversal, I feel, this story feels a little bit like Mandela. There was a shame that came over them. The longer he was in prison, the more it was sort of like, this isn't right, this guy hasn't really done anything. So they wanted to let him out. But they just asked that he recant, that he recant, that he just say, stop saying this stuff, stop teaching this, what's in the Song of Solomon. Just, don't, just say you didn't, say you were wrong, say, say you won't teach it anymore. Uh, uh, this, this whole thing is an embarrassment to us all. And he wouldn't. He would not recant. And so they finally, under pressure, released him with this warning to watch what he would say from then on. And then famously, and this is part of the history of Spain, famously, on December 30th, 1577, he returned to his classroom that he was last in four years before. Broken by prison, disheveled, weakened, and really inspired all of Spain with this saying. The first words out of his mouth as he came into his classroom on December 30th, 1577. As we were saying yesterday. And he picked right up where he left off. And Brother Luis did not recant or reconsider. He came right back to the colonnade. Prison could not drive these truths from his heart. And it could not keep him from the center where he knew God was. Right back to where they arrested him, he would not be intimidated and he would not accept their center. As we were saying yesterday. Part of what's beautiful about this text, if you look at the end, they return straight to the colonnade. But it's not like they return to the colonnade the next day. It's like they go straight there. Do you see that in the text? And they arrested the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, the angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. And at daybreak, they returned. They entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people as we were saying yesterday. They're released in the night and by daybreak, they're back in the temple courts. As we were saying yesterday. They were opposed by people who should have been their friends and it did not break them. It did not disappoint them to the point of quitting. And we ought to expect a bit of that too. But to not let it stop you from doing what God has called you to do and being who he's called you to be. As we were saying yesterday. But, and this is, I'll, I'll invite up Jason, the rest of the, the worship team. This, this is my last thought here. It's not just courage I see here though. It's not just boldness. It might seem that way, you know, maybe even to those that were watching. Look at them, look at them. They went right back. They were just in prison for this. And they went right back to where they got arrested. These people are hard as nails. They're so brave, they're so bold. And they were, 
I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mean to diminish that in any way. But it's not just courage, it's something else. For them, I think it was about the voice of the Father which they had heard in that prison cell. You see, there's something about a missionary, an apostle, that for us, everything is the voice of God. It's everything for us. If he says go, that's where we go. If he says come, we come back. If he says stay, we stay. If he says for this length, ever, the, the, the word of God, the voice of the Father is who we are. It defines us. It is everything about our identity and our hope and our confidence. These weren't people that were different than us. They're not special because they were called apostles. They're apostles, and that made them special. They were the people that go where God sent them. That's what makes them apostles. That's what makes us missionaries. And when you're like that to the world, to the watching world, you look unique. You look bold. But we know. Those of this for a long time, we know. The truth is, we're not that courageous. We're not that brave. We're not that great. We just love the voice of the Father. It's who we are. It's all we care about. It makes us who we are. It draws us into the deeper place of what we hope to be and what we think is possible in the world. It is our pitchfork. It is that note that we all tune our hearts to and nothing else really actually matters. When I was a little boy, just to give you a sense of how old I am, um, have you seen Stranger Things, the show? Okay, you guys don't live in Tampa and you haven't seen Stranger Things. The show Stranger Things, the, those boys are my age. Okay, so they're almost the exact grade. I think they're in seventh grade. I would have been in eighth grade. The exact 82 or whatever it was. And so their life, their little boyhood, that was my boyhood. And by the way, it's very, very unnerving. You know, they're on bikes at night by themselves, riding around. Remember that where they're sort of like, they're hanging out with each other, playing Dungeons and Dragons, and then they just go home on their own on bikes, and it gets crazy, the upside down or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but you know, in that, in that time, we, you know, there's, there's no cell phones. There were even phones. It wasn't like you called to get a hold of people. Once, once a child was out, once we were out in the neighborhood, once school was over and we were out with our friends, we were out. We were in the neighborhood. But in my house, in my house, you know, I had a very, some of you know my dad, he, he was very, you know, stern, strict, scary dad, uh, you know, kind of authoritarian. And, but at the same time, I had a lot of freedom. You know, I could just, and all my friends, by the way, were, were like walking distance from my house. So anybody that was my age within walking distance of my house was my friend. That's who we played with. That's, that's what made up your friend group, really. It was people you could get to on a short bike ride. And so whether it was Saturday or Sunday or after school or any time, I could really go wherever I want. I could go to Richard's house or I could go to Matt's house or I could go to Chris's house. I could go anywhere in the neighborhood that I wanted. But there was always this understanding, and we never really even had to say it. He never even had really had to say it. But the understanding was I could never be so far away that I could not hear him call me. 
And even that's a little strange now. I can't even imagine doing this as a father. But this is what my dad would do. You know, 6 o'clock would come. He would step outside our front door, and he would scream at the top of his lungs, my name. And here's what you did. So you're me, and you hear your dad, because you're, you're a block away or wherever, but you had to be within earshot. That was the distance I could go from my house. That was the rule. We never had to say the rule. We understood the rule. Because the second I got beyond earshot, I could not hear him call. And if I could not hear him call, I could not come. And if I could not come, when he called me, my behind was in serious trouble. I wouldn't even know. I'd sort of come home and just be like, he'd be like, he called me one time. And the whole world, the apocalypse would come down upon me. So this is what you did when you heard, when I heard his voice, I'd be playing with my friends or we'd be in the middle of a, uh, of a game of Sandlot football or whatever would be going on. The second I heard, Brad, this is what I did. And I'm not exaggerating. It is true. And we could ask all my friends at the time, if I heard my name, if they heard my name, I would turn around and I would run home. I didn't walk home. I didn't make my way home. I didn't finish what I was doing and then start to head home. I turned and ran home. If my dad had his way, he would prefer that I would be coming into the house at the same time he was, turning around back into the door. That would be ideal. I would run home. I mean run. Hey, um, child of God. Where are you supposed to be? What are you supposed to be doing? You see, I don't know. But I know you should never be so far away that you cannot hear him calling you. And when you hear him, I know this, you ought to run. Not just start home not begin correcting some things in your life, but run. The apostles performed miracles because they were never far. They were never out of earshot of the voice of the Father. They lived on the edge of mission. They lived in deep and powerful community because they were never far from the voice of their Father. They preached the gospel in the public square without fear. They came in and out of prison and persecution and disappointment and despair and always returned to the colonnade because they always could hear his voice. And they always ran back to him, to the one who saved them, who died for them, who they saw raised to life for them, who opened their prison doors. They ran to his voice. Do you? Will you? Again, this morning? The center for me right now, beloved, is Ireland. I have to go there. I'm not sure why. 
but I have to go there. Maybe just for one year, maybe more. My life is not my life anymore. Neither is yours. And that's what makes us something, isn't it? That's what makes us us. And it means no matter where I go, no matter where you go, in the city and beyond, we're still us. We're still us. Because we're the ones who never out of earshot and not persecution, not prison, not fear, not discouragement, not anything will keep us from him. Would you bow your head as we come to the table? And I never know for you. I never know what you're supposed to feel right now. I never know what you're supposed to do or where you've drifted. But I know he's the one to turn to because of the night he was betrayed. After giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it to remember me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sin. Drink it. Drink it. In remembrance of me. And when you come to this table, this morning when you come to this table every week, you come to remember again that your life is not your own, that you belong to him. And listen, if there's anybody in this room who, who, who doesn't know what I'm talking about actually, uh, because you have not actually delivered the fullness of your life into the hands of Jesus. You have not actually made him Lord over your life. And you know that now, you see that now, you're listening to me talk and you're thinking, that's not who I am. I, I, I want it to be who I am, but it's not who I am. And he's talking to me like I'm like him, but I'm not like him, or like I'm like these other people, but I'm not. And you know you have not really actually surrendered the whole of your life, your future, your hopes, your dreams, your direction. And maybe some of you, you said that once, but you've walked away from that commitment. And I'm asking every single person in this room that is drawing oxygen into their lungs right now to do what is only appropriate and right thing to say, all that I am, all that I have, all of my life is yours. Send me anywhere to anyone and I will go. I strike that pitchfork. I, I call that note and I ask you to harmonize your life to that note this morning. And if you can, and if you have, this is your table. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. His body broken for you, his blood shed for you. Take it and eat it and drink it to remember him. Take your time. This is a, an important moment for some of you. Take your time, but when you're ready, these elements are here for you, the body and blood of Jesus.